welcome to PH Dizzle. I'm your host, Alice Chang, and today we are interviewing Dr. Siobhan Robinson, who got her BA in biology and psychology from Williams College, did her PhD in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania, and is currently an assistant professor of psychology back at Williams College. So thanks, Siobhan, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So you have a really interesting kind of full circle story. I want to start back at the beginning. You studied biology and psychology um, at Williams. So tell me about what got you interested in that field in the first place. Sure. So going into college, I already knew that I was interested in psychology. I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I was on the pre-med track. Um, and about two years in, I think I kind of had that existential crisis that a lot of pre-med students have, where I was like, is this really what I want to do? And at the same time, I had been working as a research assistant in a neuroscience lab, and I really enjoyed the experience of designing my own experiments, you know, being able to visualize. So I was working with rats. Um, we were looking at how early life enrichment can affect their behavior, um, throughout their life. And I just really felt engaged with science um, from a research perspective, as opposed to kind of thinking about a career in medicine. So around that time, I kind of switched gears and started looking into graduate schools and decided to go straight into graduate school from undergrad, which is something I advise my students not to do. <laughs> uh, in retrospect, I think it would have been nice to take some time off. Um, but in graduate school, I continued with kind of tying in my interest in uh, kind of psychiatry, neuropsychiatry into neuroscience research. Um, so my graduate work involved understanding the neural basis of mood disorders, so anxiety, depression, again, using an animal model, which I get a lot of questions like, how do you know a mouse or a rat is depressed? <laughs> you don't. Um, but we use a lot of different behavioral assays that we can then um, kind of extrapolate how they're behaving in that paradigm to different kind of endophenotypes of human behavior. So things like lack of motivation, changes in kind of reward processing, negative affect. These are things that we see in people and we can model them in our animals, in our mice. So part of my graduate research was trying to understand why certain antidepressants work better than others um, by looking at how these animals behave in these different paradigms and then looking in their brains for different neurotransmitters and seeing how they're changed by that exposure to the antidepressant. So that was super exciting and I felt like it kind of fulfilled that sense of wanting to help people that you know originally motivated me to want to be a psychiatrist but I felt like by doing research, I was kind of at the forefront of it, you know, of really understanding what's happening uh, on a biological level and hopefully informing clinicians um, on, you know, what type of drugs to pursue to treat their patients. So it was still like clinical, like clinically minded because you're looking at antidepressants, right? So great um, point about the animal models. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. So when you initially were like, oh, I use antidepressants, I thought, oh, you did, you do studies with people or you do clinical trials or something like that, but you're actually doing them in, in mice. I did animal studies in grad school too. And there's always kind of this like 
I think people who maybe don't understand animal studies, um, there's some people who are very against animal studies if they don't understand what like the health outcomes of them are. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think the general public sometimes might be a little skeptical about animal research when it comes to studying things like depression or um, you know diseases that do feel very human. But you know a lot of what we understand about how antidepressants work comes from animal research, mm. right? You can't, it's, you can't look into somebody's brain uh, to understand like what um, neurochemicals are changing as they're taking this drug or what are the long-term effects? Are there any toxic effects, right? So these are things that we can understand using animal models. But the studies I uh, was using was, were um, pretty interesting in that I was again looking more at this motivation uh, what we call anhedonia or lack of motivation and whether or not certain antidepressants can relieve that in models uh, of depression in mice. And what it involved was essentially um, training these mice to really quickly seek out a peanut butter chip, which is like the most delicious <laughs> thing to mice. Um, but if you put I them- I would like a peanut butter chip. Sorry? I, I said, I would like a peanut butter chip. Yeah, we all like peanut butter <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense why they would love it too. Yeah. But if you change their environment where it feels a little bit threatening, maybe there's a novel scent or there's a bright light, then that will significantly um, reduce or increase the amount of time it takes for them to seek out what is normally a really rewarding treat. So I use that as a model of how a stressful environment or circumstances can sometimes dampen your motivation to seek out things that you really enjoy. Yeah. Right. So using that paradigm, I could administer my antidepressants to my mice to see if it reduces their latency to seek out the reward in the stressful environment. And at the same time, I was measuring the levels of dopamine in a brain region that's known to be associated with reward. And what I saw was if in an animal that doesn't have any antidepressant and they're in the stressful environment, you see a reduction of dopamine that kind of correlates with how long it takes for them to seek out the reward. But if you give them the antidepressant, it reverses it. So now you see this big dopamine release. Um, they're running up to the peanut butter chip. So um, those type of studies are really informative, right? Because I can see that my behaviorally the drug is effective. And I'm also seeing what's happening in the brain at the same time. Got so it. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. But I do have a question. So you said mice don't really get depression, but sometimes I see people have pets and, you know, it's like, oh, you have a dog and it's so sad because, you know, somebody in the family died. So um, do we know anything about depression in animals? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think, you know, definitely people have described like anxiety in dogs and cats, you know, um, you like leave especially dogs who are very social and you know if their owners aren't around um i think in this line of research we're really careful about anthropomorphizing mm -hmm. uh behaviors on to uh animals so you know what does it mean for a mouse to be depressed um it, it's not taking care of its coat so usually they groom a lot you might see that it's starting to look a little ragged their fur is kind of matted um, again, they're not seeking out rewards as much as they would uh, normally do. Um, you see them lose weight a little bit. So these are behaviors that come out specifically after you induce some sort of stressful uh, manipulation, right? So a mouse, to my knowledge, won't just 
become depressed. Right. Um, and you can also argue that humans don't just become depressed. There's usually some stimulus or yes. uh, that triggers that or genetics and, you know, um, so I think that's another important component of this work is that we're using some sort of environmental manipulations, a stressor paradigm to kind of induce those depressive behaviors that we can then reverse with our antidepressants. Mm, okay. So you did your PhD in that field and then you actually stayed at Penn and did a postdoc. Yep. So you got to teach a little bit. Um, did your research change? It did change a little bit. So part of this work that I was doing with antidepressants in graduate school involved a drug called buprenorphine, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, currently FDA approved to treat pain, acute pain. I, we used to use it um, as like a, like when, before we did surgeries exactly. to like knock yeah. them out, I think, yeah. Right, so it's a strong analgesic. Yeah. Um, and it's an opioid. And when I was in graduate school, there was also some really promising clinical evidence in humans that buprenorphine could act as a fast acting antidepressant. So oh, one thing that some people might not be aware of is uh, the antidepressants that are uh, typically considered like the first line, what physicians will prescribe if someone comes in and is describing depressive symptoms uh, is usually an SSRI, so a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And for some people, those drugs can take maybe three to four weeks to actually start working, right? So, and you can see how that could be a dangerous situation for someone um, if they have really strong depressive symptoms and you tell them, well, maybe in a month you'll feel better. Uh, so there's a real push to develop antidepressants that work faster. Um, and there was evidence that buprenorphine might be one of those drugs. So this was another antidepressant that I evaluated when I was in graduate school. And when I transitioned into my postdoc, because I had experience working with opioids, even though it was in kind of this uh, mood disorder realm, um, I was involved in a project that was looking at opioids from the perspective of substance use disorders. And it just kind of felt like a natural transition to me. Starting in my postdoc, I um, started developing a project trying to understand the long-term effects of early life opioid exposure. Um, and I'm sure everyone is very aware of the huge opioid crisis that we're in now. It's kind of been overshadowed by COVID, but um, we're in a huge opioid epidemic. And part of that, uh, you know, in addition to increases in the numbers of people overdosing or who have uh, a substance use disorder, um, we're also seeing an increase in the number of infants who are exposed to opioids gestationally, right? So in utero. Mm -hmm. um, and this isn't a new problem, you know, there's always been um, gestational exposure to drugs. It's, it's, you know, if people use drugs, this is gonna be an issue, um, but the numbers have risen to such a dramatic level that it's really become um, a public health issue and that we, it's not very clear what the long-term effects of this early drug exposure is. So again, using our animal model, we can look at this in a very controlled environment again, in humans, it's really hard, even if you're tracking someone longitudinally, there's so many factors that can influence, you know, their outcomes, right? So uh, using our animal models, everyone's eating the same food, <laughs> they're in the same environment, they're getting mm. the same exact treatment. The only variable is whether they were exposed to the opioids mm. uh, gestationally or not. Um, so I started doing that work in my postdoc and 
now as an assistant professor, my lab is continuing to do some of these studies. Okay. And so now you're at Williams. So this is like the, the full circle. So did you always know you wanted to be a professor? We talked about wanting to be a psychiatrist and going into grad school. Um, at what point were you like, okay, I think I want to pursue academia? Right. That's a great question. Cause I, I don't even know if I'd phrase it as like, did I always want to be a professor? <laughs> did I, it happen? <laughs> it happened, which I know is not a great story, but um, okay. I think once I knew that I didn't want to go to med school, I enjoyed doing research as a research assistant as an undergrad. I really enjoyed the interactions I had with my professors at Williams. Um, being at a small school, I think really allows for more kind of close-knit relationships with your professors. Um, and I felt like if I was going into academia, I wanted to have the exact same job that they had. Oh. You know? <laughs> um, so going into graduate school, I knew that I would want to go back to a small school. Um, I didn't want to be at a big research university. Um, I wanted to work with undergrads. And that was actually really helpful for my trajectory in graduate school because I knew I wanted to get teaching experience. Um, uh, I you know, made sure that when I was a postdoc, I worked with undergrads in the lab, um, had them attached to my projects. So when it came to applying for um, tenure track jobs, I had a strong history of showing interest in that type of um, environment. So I think it, it did help being at a small school and knowing that you can do really exciting research. Um, uh, in that when I was in graduate school that I kind of had my eye on that ball. Mm -hmm. I think that is a really good point. So many people, you know, want to go into academia and there's this like pursuit of R1 schools that are doing a lot of research that are doing like getting funded, but the teaching component is like smaller there and the class size is huge. And so, and it's very like research driven and super competitive, yes, yeah. um, which is, you know, fine for some people if they really love that. But I think there's another, there are lots of different flavors of academia. And so to be um, aware of what other choices you like, what would you actually like and finding an institution that is the right fit for you? Yeah. Yeah. And I think graduate programs are getting better at that. Mm. Uh, so towards the end of my graduate experience, I definitely um, kind of explored other options, right? So uh, I did some pro bono consulting. I did, you know, like healthcare consulting. Uh, I was involved in some kind of regulatory affairs things. I was on an IRB committee. And I really encourage people who are in graduate school, even if you know you want to go to an R1 or you want to go to a small school, to just try out these other mm -hmm. career options. Because you might find something that you really like and you just didn't, you weren't aware that it was yeah. for you, right? Yeah. And so tell me how you got back into Williams. Was that just like, just luck and timing? Or did you like, did you know somebody and you're like, oh, I definitely, this is where I want to be? Yeah. Um, I, I would say it was half luck and half um, keeping in touch with people, okay. <laughs> good networking. Um, so I had always kept in touch with my advisors at Williams um, and let them know where I was in my career. So I'd email oh. them like, oh yeah, like I just published my first paper, like uh -huh. I'm getting ready to get back. Um, and so when I was in my post, I just finished the first year of my postdoc, which is typically you know, a three to five year thing, sometimes even seven, depending <laughs> on the type of job that you're trying to get. 
But I had just finished my first year and my advisor from Williams emailed me and she was like, Siobhan, we're posting a tenure track position in the fall. I really think you should apply. And I was like, wow. no, I shouldn't. Like, I was totally like, I'm not ready. I just <laughs> finished my first year of my postdoc. Like, what am I even going to talk about? Um, but, you know, when opportunity comes, you should, you Do know. It. So I was like, you know what, worst case scenario is I put together these materials, right? And like, I'll just have it for next time when I'm actually ready. <laughs> uh, but I really put my heart into it because I was like, this is being so back home is literally like my dream job. Um, so I, you know, put together my materials. I, I sent it to a lot of people. I got a lot of feedback. Um, I practiced my job talk like a million times and I got the job. So, yeah, so yeah, it was amazing. I was, I'm so, <laughs> I still like, it's hard to believe sometimes. Um, and uh, one nice thing was that Williams, uh, they were, uh, you know, very aware of that your postdoc is usually more than a couple years. So they're like, hey, if you want to defer your start date and finish your postdoc. So at this point, uh, at the point that I had gotten the job offer, uh, I was halfway through my second year of my postdoc. So you're like, if you want to finish your third year, you know, get your papers out, that's fine. You could defer one year. Um, so that was great because I felt like I got uh, the cake and was able to eat it too because I yeah. had a job waiting for me, but I was able to finish up my oh, project. So nice. So it was wow. best case scenario for sure. Yeah, I. this is so rare. I, I mean, most people I interview, well, most people I interview don't, aren't going into academia. And then the people who are going to academia are stuck in a postdoc and they're like waiting for the right thing to open yeah. up. And yeah. Um, so yeah, so amazing. I'm so happy for you. And Thank like, you. when it comes, take it, you know? So. And I, that's the advice I've been giving other people too, is because if I had just been like, oh, I'm not ready, I'm not gonna apply. I would have missed out on this amazing opportunity. So yeah. even if you don't feel ready, you know, just go for it. Like there's nothing. Yeah. I think I will also say, I think that also speaks to the power of having great mentors, people that see something in you when you don't. And I, and I don't want to say it's like you're underrepresented or a woman or whatever, but I, I think that a lot of the, um, the hesitation to apply for things that you don't think you deserve comes from being from a background where you don't see a lot of people. And so, and I just, I thought that was really great. Like you kept in touch with your mentors and they reached out and they're like, you are qualified for this and you should apply. And so then that changed your thinking because I think the thing is also traditionally people like graduate, did their PhD and then they started as a professor. It's only been in the last, I don't, well, I don't know how many years, but like recently where it's like the, those positions have all dried up. And so everyone's doing this like extended postdoc. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. It, it really highlights the importance of good mentors. And that's the exact thing that I want to do in my position too, right? Yes. Is kind of give back in that way and really provide that support for my students so that they feel confident, you know, in whatever they decide to pursue after Williams. Yeah, that's amazing. Tell me with your free time, if you have any free time, what are the types of things that you like to do? Yeah, um, free time is a interesting, <laughs> interesting word for me. Because what I've discovered uh, both in graduate school and as a uh, faculty is that free time doesn't just happen. You have to create it. Mm. Uh, there's been times where I literally like in my calendar, I was like, this is reading time or this is crafting time or this is, you know, my hobby yeah. time. Because if you don't make it, it's not going to happen. Like all your other responsibilities are going to take it. Anyway, so 
When I was in graduate school, um, I joined several different orchestral groups. So I'm a violist. Um, I've been playing viola since I was in third grade. Aww. And it's one of those things where like, there was a point in my life where I was like, perhaps I'll go into music performance or perhaps I'll go into pre-med. It, it was like a strange <laughs> like fork in the road. Um, but I decided, you know, this is just something I enjoy doing. I don't think I would enjoy it if it became competitive or if I had to like apply or um, try out for things. Um, but being at Penn was great because I could jump into all of the, <laughs> the programming that they have for the undergrads. Um, so there's a really great uh, like orchestra, undergraduate orchestra that was there. And I was also part of a chamber group where we had a coach who um, met with us weekly and we had performances every semester. Uh, so that has been a huge part of my life in terms of hobby, but also a stress reliever. Yeah. It's really nice when um, nothing is working in the lab to be like, oh, at least I'm still good at this other thing. <laughs> um, and so as faculty, COVID kind of ruined a lot of my plans, but there is um, a few different groups on campus uh, that I'm hoping to be part of once we're allowed to gather <laughs> in close proximity. Um, but when COVID started, I kind of shifted into other like crafting artsy stuff. Um, and I've always been the type of person where like something catches my interest and I obsess over it for a few months and then I switch to something else. So I, <laughs> I got really into crocheting and knitting. I made like a million blankets and I was like, okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> I started embroidering. And so now I have like all of these embroidery things. Actually, I can show you one of those. Do it. Pop over. All right, I want to see it. All right, I'll be right. I also want to see you play viola. Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> all right, so this was Wow. That's beautiful. How, uh, long, how long did that take you? This probably took a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. So yeah, I was going to say it looks very intricate. Thank you. Um, I would pull out my viola, but we just moved and I don't actually know where it is. It's okay. I will find, send me a video. Yes. I'll send you a video from one of my chamber uh, group well wait so i want to go back to the embroidery so what got you into embroidery and what do you use that for now that you've made it uh <laughs> just decoration <laughs> does it just go on a, i just like it like reminds me of something that like you go to like an older person's house and they yeah. have like on the, but i but i'm like oh maybe it goes somewhere else like uh, a shirt or something totally what my living room is becoming like <laughs> old woman's like crafting um, so actually I have followed, you know, as part of my obsession over embroidery right now, yeah. I follow a bunch of embroiderists um, on Instagram and they'll embroider, you know, like their jeans or their clothes. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, you can embroider like pillows and curtains and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not quite there yet. I'm still working on my hoop, but <laughs> if I stick with this long enough. Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll have some embroidered jeans to show off in six okay. years. And so, yeah, I'll check back and we'll see your, your new wardrobe in six years. <laughs> okay, um, okay, now back to the viola. So yeah. how did you pick viola over violin, which I feel like is a more popular option? It is, uh, this is a great story. Um, so I started playing viola when I was in third grade. Uh, and part of that process was, there was like a little assembly where they show you all the instruments and you can kind of like pick them up and kind of get a sense of what you want to play. 
And as a eight-year-old, I, I was like, well, I want something that is going to be really easy to carry around, right? So I was like, cello and bass is out of it. Um, and then for some reason, I thought that the viola was smaller than the violin when they were showing them off. And I was like, yeah, super compact. This is, this is <laughs> turns out the viola is actually bigger than the violin. Um, but uh, what has this been the- like a 30 year mistake or like a 20 year <laughs> mistake that has carried? Well, it seems like it served you well. So that's it served me well. Um, and what's cool about playing viola is that, as you said, violin is a much more popular instrument. So when it came to doing like, when I was in high school, I did a bunch of like music competitions, um, like county and state and all that. Um, and because there's much fewer violists, I felt like it was a lot easier to get into these. Yeah. Uh, so it, it worked out well for me. Can you do, um, you know, some people do, they play and then they also like kick their legs up, like do river dancing. at the Oh summer. yeah, I never did that. Um, <laughs> But there were groups like in my high school that did like fiddling and it was that like you're playing and you're moving around. Um, yeah, never made it. Just straight classical. We'll, we'll check back in six years. We'll check back. These, these are goals. Okay, <laughs> these are goals for studying for six years. I'm going to write them down. Okay, <laughs> like, that sounds good. <laughs> um, maybe like you can play while you're like embroidering with your exactly. Or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it's so important to have hobbies as a scientist like I think it's yeah. really easy to get so sucked into your science um but you need something else to give your life meaning or else you know when days don't go well in the lab it can be a huge soul crusher mm-hmm. um, that's why for me it's so important to have these things even though it's kind of ridiculous <laughs> like gone through. um because it's just something to look forward to and um I also feel like it helps with my creativity, just constantly doing things and learning how to do new things. Um, So, and I've met lots of scientists who are also musicians, which Mm -hmm. is crazy. Like actually at Williams, there are, I know at least three other violists within some fields. Yeah. Uh, So in the math and stats department um, and uh, kind of biological sciences, so it's kind of cool just to see that overlap of, you know, artists and scientists. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I just encourage people to, you know, not make lab the only thing that's going for you. Yeah, I think that's so important. Uh, I guess for people going through grad school, I know I struggled. I mean, I still struggle with this um, setting boundaries because mm-hmm. I think when you're younger, Uh, at least for me, it was like, oh, I just have to work really hard. I need to get ahead. It's not okay to like not work because everyone's always like, like they're demanding something from me and I need to perform. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, I'm just gonna not, like, I don't need to respond. I I will just wait till tomorrow. And it's like, it's hard for me to be like, but I could just, I'm free. Why don't I just respond? And from literally just to practice being like, this is not an important email. I'm just gonna look at it in the morning. And in the morning, I'm like so anxious to like read it, but I, I'm getting, I'm trying to be better at that. And for you, something like blocking time off, being like, I'm going to be intentional about it. Did you ever feel like it was hard for you? And how did you overcome that? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I was exactly the same in graduate school. Um, and it's, I think there is definitely a pressure to perform, to yeah. put out work, right? So it's hard to um, justify taking time off to like knit or something when I know like ah, I have this experiment that I need to do. 
Um, I think it really was when I transitioned into my postdoc after doing five years of that. I was like, yeah. this is not healthy or sustainable. Yes. Uh, and I am not willing to break myself down like that for this career. So I was like, either I have to find a better balance or this is just not going to work for me. So in my postdoc, I was much more intentional about boundaries. I'm like, I'm still not perfect at it. You know, I still, when an email comes in, I'm like, oh, I got to <laughs> that or... Um, but I, you know, definitely am working on a better work-life balance. Um, and as faculty too, now I, you know, I think one of the hard things was letting go a little bit, um, mm -hmm. so delegating to my, and again, I don't have graduate students because it's not an R1, they're undergrads, but still having to trust that once I've trained my students and, you know, they're on top of their projects that they can do it. Yeah. And if they need help, they will seek me out. Because the other thing that can happen is you become so like uh, micromanagey that you're yeah. not like, oh, I have to be here for every single experiment. And that's when you lose all of your time, right? Like, yeah. Well, and I'm sure the students hate it too. Because can you imagine what it'd be like to be micromanaged? Yeah. Exactly. So a part of my like, setting boundaries and having a better work-life balance has been kind of developing this trust in the process that, you know, I've trained them, they know what to do. I don't have to be in the lab all the time. Um, but it, I'll, it's still one of the fun parts of my job too, right? So yeah. kind of going back and forth between like, let me carve out, this is when I'll be in the lab. This is when I'm working on, you know, course prep and my other duties. And then when I go home, I'm home, you know, like yeah. I, I really tried to separate work from home um, just to make sure that it's not a constant thing, you know. PH Dizzle. Having fun with smart people who do cool things. <laughs> <laughs>